It had been 400 years. And some of us had begun to believe that God had forgotten about us. But one night, he came. And not as a king, not as a warrior, our savior, our messiah, he came in the most unexpected way, as a child. that you decided to join us today in our December series, Unexpected, the Story of Christmas. My name is Katie Reich. I am the children's pastor here, and I am also married to and the source of many sermon illustrations to my husband, Josh Reich. He is the campus pastor here, and I love him more than you do. So, uh, last week we heard that he hates Christmas carols, but one of the things that he loves is Christmas. And that is one of the things that we love to celebrate every year, obviously, is Christmas at our home. But we love to unbox our Christmas ornaments and unbox our Christmas ornaments and unbox our Christmas ornaments and unbox our Christmas ornaments. Some of you may have beautifully coiffed Christmas trees with matching ribbon and matching ornaments, and you may actually have it match your decor. Our Christmas tree is a hodgepodge of a million different Christmas ornaments that my husband has gotten every year since he was a baby. He's gotten a Hershey's, Pennsylvania Christmas ornament. There you go. Uh, he has, he's from Pennsylvania. He has gotten a Campbell's Soup collector's ornament. He has gotten a handmade ornament, and he's also gotten an ornament each year to represent a place that he's been. So you can imagine that every year when we pull out all of our boxes of ornaments, we do not have room on our tree for all of them. And that is not a joke. And we have a nine-foot tree. So we also have five kids. We have our oldest, who's a 14-year-old, our only daughter. And then we have four boys. And we have, okay, 14-year-old daughter, 12-year-old son, 10-year-old son, another 10-year-old son, and a 7-year-old son. So we have a lot of testosterone in our house. And... um, We're finally to the point where we can trust them with some of those Campbell's Soup Collector uh, ornaments to put them on the tree. They don't get, like, tossed and thrown and broken. Sometimes they do. Sorry, Mom. Uh, So one of the things that you need to know about our family is that our two youngest are adopted. We adopted our youngest as an infant here from Tucson, and then one of our 10-year-olds, he is adopted from Ethiopia, and he came into our family when he was about five years old. Some of the favorite ornaments that my kids get to open each week are there, not each week, each Christmas, are there, I was potty trained. They love their potty training ornaments. Who knew that that would be the joy of their Christmas experience, right? Like they're just reveling in the fact that they are still potty trained. It happened once and it still is the case. A few years ago, our son from Ethiopia, he came to us and he said, where's my potty training ornament? You see, he joined our family when he was five, and he was already potty trained. We don't know his story. We don't know much of the details of his life before he joined our family. And so because of that, 
This time that has been a time of celebration now becomes a time of mourning, a time that we need to take space and allow him to grieve some of his story that he's not able to connect with. He again this year asked, can I just have a potty training ornament? Sure, we'll get you a potty training ornament, put it on the list, okay? We still have so much to do. Uh, When we enter this season, there's this expectation that it is happy and shiny and fun and fun and fun the entire season. The problem is, is that this mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted. A lot of times we come into this holiday season knowing what our expectation is and then realizing what reality is actually going to be, right? We think that maybe with enough work and enough positivity that we can just buy all the right Christmas gifts and everyone is going to be happy and it'll be great. But you see, the fact that Christmas comes every year, it's the winding down of our year, we're looking into the new year, it allows us to kind of take stock of where we're at. It allows us to look around the table and to see that person who used to be at our table isn't there anymore. Or maybe there's a new person at our table and that's exciting, or maybe that's not exciting. But we also can realize, too, our finances. Have they progressed? Have they moved forward? Or have they stalled out? Our health, has it gone up and to the right? Are things going well? Or are there things that we don't know the answers to? You see, the life we have desired is usually not the reality that we live in. And today, as we look at the continuation of our Christmas story, that is where we find Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is married to Zechariah, which Josh talked about last week. And we are calling this series Unexpected because God shows up to unexpected people at unexpected times and in unexpected ways. You see, the Gospels, which is the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are at a time when God has been silent for 400 years. So in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people through prophets, through angels, through visions, through miracles, through kings and priests, and then nothing for 400 years. And so now we are seeing God break in to the Christmas story in ways that people were not expecting. We'll continue looking at our series, uh, or our passage today in Luke 1, 5 through 7. I'm going to paraphrase this for you. If you want to get your Bibles out from your seats, we'll look at that in a minute. But in this story, we see a parallel unfolding of two different stories. And the situation is impossible for both of them. The setting of the events of Luke's birth narrative is a struggle during the reign of King Herod. He's a tyrant king, And the Israelites, during his reign and before his reign, have been exiled. They've been attacked, and they've been in bondage. And now they're living under this king who obviously is stealing all their joy. Not because he's necessarily doing anything in particular, but just the daily grind of getting up and knowing that you haven't heard God in your entire life and in generations previous to you and you still have the daily grind of doing everything that you need to do. You see, these people, the ones that are faithful, still go to the temple every day to pray. They practice their rites and rituals, and if they're expecting to hear from God, we don't know. But it's reasonable to imagine that they've lost their hope. Then we 
here about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're living during this time, and their story is hopeless as well. They are barren, they are without children, and there is no way for them to restore this fact. They're too old. There's nothing that they can do about it. Not enough positivity, not enough great thinking, not enough will bring about a child, okay? In this society, no children meant dishonor. It meant shame for the couple. People would see it as a curse from God. In verse 6 of Luke chapter 1, it says, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. The The emphasis here is on their moral excellence through repetition. They don't deserve to be barren, and yet they are. And that's where we find ourselves in this story, right? We live in the middle of the unresolved. We live in the middle where things are messy. What does this waiting and this unresolved place look like for you? You might be in the middle of a messy divorce, a custody battle for kids. Maybe you're waiting for test results. Or maybe it's just the daily grind or the burden of providing for yourself or for your family. All of these things erode at our ability to hope, to dream, to think about what our future might look like because we're stuck in this messy middle place. Some of our middle is the fact that we're dealing with a tragedy that happened to us when we were vulnerable and there was nothing we could do about it. And it hasn't necessarily changed our present, but it changed how we interact with our story and with life. And that steals our hope. You see, our stories are incomplete. And still we have the daily grind of getting through the day, putting one foot in front of the other, and we long for something more. You see, my story is that each Christmas I have two ornaments. Not because I didn't celebrate Christmas as a child. We did celebrate Christmas when I was a kid. But when I was in junior high school, my mom's house burnt down. And we kept all of our Christmas ornaments in the garage where most of the damage was done. And for whatever reason, I had stored these two little ornaments in my room. And so they were salvaged. Those ornaments, and that actually, after that fire, what ended up happening before that fire, what ended up happening is my parents got divorced. And then my dad got remarried. And for me, these two ornaments that I bring into our relationship represent that joy of childhood before all of that happened. And it is a desire for me to wish that that was the complete story of my childhood, but it's not. And now, as an adult, I'm in this messy middle place of trying to figure out appropriate boundaries with my parents when I wish that our relationship was more substantial and having hope for what that can look like in the future. We're all marked by our stories which impact our present, and we find ourselves in a place of waiting and longing for hope. What if there is a path, though, that can lead to life and hope? Just like the Israelites were waiting, and Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting and longing for a child, and we're living in our stories. What if what others saw as a curse actually sets the stage for God's unexpected deliverance? You see, his deliverance doesn't always look like we want it to, though, does it? I want to read to you a couple of God's promises. God promises many things in the Bible. Unfortunately, a life that is always up and to the right is not one of them. 
We're not guaranteed a healthy body, wealth beyond our wildest dreams, or a life free from want. And yet he does promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. He says that although Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, he has come so that you can have life and have it to the fullest. We're also told that God does not delay his promise but is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but to come to repentance. He loves us and he pursues us. And in this relationship, he promises that we will be made new now and fully in the future. Jess Connolly says that most of us have lost the strength to believe that he can actually heal the messiest story. Maybe we need to remember that we have hope because God doesn't take just those broken places and those messiest places and push them under the rug and halfway heal us. God promises that he will be with us and we will be made new. You see, God keeps his promises and we can have hope. In our story, there's an unexpected encounter with an angel and an average elderly couple. And God ushers his redemptive plan forward and breaks that long silence. In Luke 1, 8 through 23, we learn that Zechariah is chosen by Lot to go into the temple to burn incense. This is Elizabeth's husband. All of the assembled worshipers are praying outside of the temple. An angel appears to him and says, Do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. He doesn't believe, and so he is struck mute. If you turn to page 698 in your Bibles, in your seats, we'll look at Luke 1, 23 through 24. And it is the response um, after this. So 698 in your Bibles. Luke 1, 23 through 24 says, When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And so Elizabeth does what any rational introvert would do. She goes and hides in her house for five months with her mute husband, right? But why does she hide away? Is she afraid that this pregnancy won't come to fruition? Is she unable to fully grasp that her prayers have been answered and what this may mean for her? Does she just need to sit with this new reality and let it sink in? You see, last week, Josh talked about Zachariah's name. And Zachariah's name means the Lord has remembered, which is an integral part of this story. When Elizabeth felt forgotten by God, he remembered and he acted. Elizabeth's name, on the other hand, means my God is an oath. My God is an oath, meaning God keeps his word. What he says he will do, he does. Verse 25 says that the Lord has done this for me. And this is Elizabeth talking. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Not only is God answering her prayer, he is rewriting her story. Elizabeth has lived for years under the shame of her community and neighbors. But because God is keeping his promise, she now has hope and the grip of shame that has entangled her is loosening. Don't many of us need to hear that in our stories today? There is a new story being written for you. Those things that have so long defined us or are currently choking out our hope will be made new. I wonder if during this time of seclusion, Elizabeth 
needed to hear God whispering to her her name. God is an oath. I will do what I promised. You can have hope. As her belly grows, you can have hope. As her clothes tighten, you can have hope. As her body aches, you can have hope. And isn't this where we are? In your loss, you can have hope. In your brokenness, you can have hope. In your diagnosis, you can have hope. In your fear, you can have hope. In your anxiety, in your addiction, God promises that he will do what he says he can do and you can have hope. How do we hold on to that hope though? It is so easy to let life erode that hope from us. I think God does something that is so human here and is so, not that God is human, but that speaks to our human hearts. As we wait for God's word to be fulfilled for Elizabeth, God reveals to Mary that he need, she needs to go to Elizabeth. She gives Elizabeth a relationship. Relationships help us to hold onto the anchor of hope when life is hard. In Luke 1, 39 through 45, we see that an angel appears to Mary, gives her some of her own big news. Don't worry, you will birth the Son of God and you will still be a virgin. But by the way, your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. Verse 6, 36 and 37 says, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. Why the angel has to bring up her old age? Again, I don't know. Everyone knows she's old. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is already in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Again, God is reminding them, I keep my promises. We learn that Mary gets ready. She hurries to Elizabeth. And then she stays with Elizabeth for three months. Usually we have the rule that relatives are able to stay for about seven days. Just like leftovers, right? Nothing good comes from leftovers after seven days. This is obviously not the case with Mary and Elizabeth. We don't learn in the scriptures of any falling out between them. I can imagine this is a time when both of them needed to shore each other up and remind each other that although they may not totally understand what God is doing, that he is keeping his promises and that he is going to do what he said he will do. You see, when we can't have hope and dream for ourselves, a trusted friend can dream for us and hold space for our story. Through our adoption journey, we've learned that love is not enough to heal a broken past. But what we have learned is what is broken in relationship can only be mended in relationship. Just being present with someone with very few words, some of us need to hear that, with very few words can help to shore up someone's hope, to help point them to the truth of what they need to understand. You see, God says it's not good that we are alone. And this is evidenced in our own experience when we're faced with great joy or unmeasured tragedy. One person sitting alone eating cake is just a sad dessert. But if there are other people around, it's a party, right? Where there's conversation, there's laughter, there's connection. Relationships can multiply that joy. Later in the story, after Elizabeth has actually birthed her son John, her neighbors and relatives hear that the Lord has shown her great mercy, and they share in her joy. What about sadness? 
Sadness is usually brought about by some kind of loss, typically aging and death of parents, maybe a career mishap, the loss of dreams in a marriage, losses from your own child or from your own childhood or losses in your own kids' lives, health issues. You see, helping to carry someone's loss with presence and authentic care can create an atmosphere which can support others to tolerate and work through their loss. These actions may not change our circumstances, but sometimes a trusted friend can actually usher in the answer to our prayers. I have this friend, and I use that term very loosely. Kate and her husband, Peter, they live in Chicago. They planned an extraordinary Christmas trip for their entire family, a trip to Paris. They're getting all their preparations ready. It's the night before they leave. Everyone goes to bed. The power goes out. The alarm clocks do not go off. And in a rush to get to the airport, they leave something behind. Yeah, you guys know this person too? (laughs) They're on the plane when they realize what it is. Kate opens her eyes and says, Kevin, they've lost their son and they've left him at home. They are without hope of trying to get back to the States and home on the next flight. It's the holidays. How are they going to get back? We see that Kate does everything in her power to produce that hope, right? She, she sells her watch. She sells her earrings. She gives away money. And she finally gets to Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all places. And she's sitting at the ticket counter and she says, I need to get home to my son. This Christmas season is supposed to be the perpetual season of hope. And just as she's standing there yelling at the ticket agent, do you know who walks up? Gus Polinski, the polka king, right? And he ushers forth hope for her. He says, I am headed to Sheboygan. And I would love, in the back of our moving truck, to give you a ride to Chicago. I love that even in Christmas, it's home alone, by the way, you guys. It's not actually a friend, in case you needed to know, okay? Uh, I love that even in our Christmas movies, that friends can be a conduit of healing and hope. But what makes a good friend? An illustration that I've seen is a friend is not necessarily, an empathetic friend, is not necessarily one who will stand above the pit that you're in, right? The emotional pit that you're in and say, hey, I hope you're doing well. I bet you can do this, you've got it. But they are the ones who actually climb into that pit with us and they say, hey, do you just need me to sit with you for a while? Do you just need someone's presence right now? Or maybe you need to offer them a word of encouragement. Hey. I know you can do this. And even if you can't do it, I'm here to help make sure it happens. Maybe what they think is a pit is actually a wall they've built up. And maybe you need to express to them some truth to help tear down that wall so that they can experience some freedom. Do you have a friend like that? We like to call them our 3 a.m. friends. The friends who probably will answer the phone at 3 a.m. when we're in a crisis. I would encourage you right now to think of who that person might be for yourself. Who at 3 a.m. can you call to say things are not going well? 
And if you don't have that person, who are you keeping at an arm's distance right now that you can call out to and be honest with and say, I need someone in my life. I need to be able to hold onto the hope that I know is promised, but I can't do it myself right now. If we look back when Mary first comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth responds to Mary's um, bursting into her life and says, blessed are you among women. Again, this is Elizabeth talking to Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. The first person to proclaim that God is keeping his promise and that the experience of his physical presence is an old, barren woman who had lost all her hope. We act as if God showing up is the miracle. But what we understand from Scripture, God showing up is not the miracle. That is the given. He promises his presence for us. What the miracle is, is his hope. Dan Allender says that hope is the anticipation of joy that courses through us and prompts us to rise and rebuild, to envision and risk for what is not yet. Hope takes the experience of loss and powerlessness and uses it as the raw material for writing a new and unexpected story. You see, when John was born, that new and unexpected story continued to unfold. Luke 16, 16, the Living Translation says, until John the Baptist began to preach, the laws of Moses and the messages of the prophets were the guides. But John introduced the good news that the kingdom of God would come soon. Our hope lies in the fact that the kingdom of God came through Mary's baby Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. You see, he's not left us alone. Not only has he graced us and provided friendships to help us to hold on to that hope, he himself said that I am coming, I am Emmanuel, God with you, I will be your friend. I desire a relationship with you. And that presence changes everything for us. You see, our problem is that we're sinners, we're separated from God. Yet Jesus lived a perfect life and took the punishment for all of the wrong things that we've done so that we could be reconciled to him. He pursues us and desires a relationship with us. And if we take that step to ask God to be Lord of our life, then we have the hope that he is making all things new now and will make them fully new in the future. His presence brings forth new life and protects that new life. Our circumstances may not change, but we can have hope that he will ultimately make things new. As we move into a time of communion, um, I want to remind you that communion is a time for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus. And I want us during this time to think about those areas in your life where you have lost hope. And as you, uh, as the band plays and as you head to the communion stations, there's two in the back and two in the front, that you think about and imagine what your life might be like if you did have hope. Imagine what it would look like to dream again to rise and rebuild, to envision and to risk for what is not yet. The song that the band's going to be playing is called Living Hope. 
It's a reminder that our hope is in Jesus and his ability to heal and enter into our story. As it plays, go ahead and make your way to those tables. And also, there is um, a people back in the back who could pray with you if you feel like, I need someone to lift me up and to shore up that lost hope that I have. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Go ahead and bow your heads with me. Thank you.